I'm sure many of you have heard the expression to put God in a box. To put God in a box. That oftentimes uh, means one of of two things. Uh, On the one hand, uh, it it can mean putting a limit on what he can do. Okay, putting God in a box is in essence to, to put a limit on what he can do. Our assumptions that we, that we have, the um, steel-clad constraints of our understanding and beliefs um, dictate our expectations of who he is and what he can do. And so we have, in that sense, put him in a box. That's, that's one sense in, in which that expression can be made. And the other one is no better is no better whatsoever. To put God in a box in this way is not so much about what he can do, but where he can go. In this case, it's not so much about uh, assumptions as to what he has the ability to do, but this has more to do with our, our truncated application of his word in our lives. Our obedience, uh, limited in terms of depth, and degree, uh, his his reign, in this sense of limitation, his his reign uh, is hemmed in, and his voice towards our hearts and in our towards our lives is muted. This is to put God in a box. Either one, either one, in terms of what He can do or where He can go, is to put God in a box, and both of these are disastrous. beauty of it is the word, his word, time and again, gives his people box-smashing truth that we have but to hear. Uh, And that is no less the case as we are beginning this series here in the book of Leviticus. Uh, It's certainly found here in chapter 1, this box-smashing reality uh, on the limitations we want to put on God. So if you have a Bible, I ask you to turn now to Leviticus 1. Uh, this is after Genesis. Well, all, it all is, isn't it? Um, after Genesis and af- after Exodus, and then we move on into Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Last week, we began uh, this series with what was meant to be something of an introduction. And uh, now we're, we're beginning with chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, as we're going to be hitting the high points uh, through this book. And it seemed like uh, this would certainly be worth spending some time here. Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, uh, as we learn something here of the burnt offering. Hear now God's word. The Lord God called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priest shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar 
and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to hear your word. Uh, here at the start of this week, and thank you for uh, giving us the book of Leviticus. Um, thank you for recording it for us. Thank you for giving it to your people uh, in the original context and all of its extraordinary significance for them uh, for centuries and for us today as we look back. Um, we need this. As much as we might be puzzled and scratching our head uh, right now and wondering, couldn't we look at something else? Uh, we have to, to know that if you have given this to us, if this is part of the Scripture, if this is included in the Bible, this has to be for us in some way. So would you help us? Help us to see its, significant, its significance and um, its application for us because it's here. Would you help us? We pray in your name. Amen. There are things that are worth keeping in mind, bearing in mind in any new relationship. There are things bearing in mind, keeping in mind in a new phase of even an existing relationship. Here's an example. So think in terms of marriage and some of the good, not the not so good, the better premarital counseling advice that you can get. Here, here would be just a, a quick little rundown of a few things. So first of all, no mind reading. No, no mind reading. Those of you who uh, have, are married or have been married could speak to maybe the winsomeness, the wisdom of that. No mind reading. Make your expectations known and clear to the other person. Uh, if there is criticism to be made of their family... Let them be the one to make it. Learn how to disagree. Learn how to disagree. It's not a matter of, of when or if, but how. Learn how to disagree. And maybe finally, uh, 
grow in the fine art of, of listening and know that you will never, ever, ever, ever master it. But keep trying. Listening. Things to bear in mind. Things to bear in mind in a new relationship. Things to keep in mind in the new phase of an existing relationship. Which brings us to Leviticus. Brings us right into Leviticus. Remember what we said last week? How the book of Leviticus chapter 1 picks up right where you leave off in the book of Exodus. It picks up right, off, right where you leave off. And what's happened in the book of Exodus? Well, the Lord has initiated a covenant with his people, a covenant relationship with his people. He has given them the Ten Commandments and in essence said to them, this is how you are to respond to my love, to live in my love in response to my initiative, this covenant. And in fact, he's also given them the plans uh, for the tabernacle. And the rationale behind that is that he is saying, I am your God. You are my people, and I'm going to not just live oh, you know, nearby. I'm going to live in your midst. I'm going to dwell with you, my people. But how can that be? That raises all kinds of questions. We talked about this last week. How can the infinite holy God live right there in the neighborhood in the midst of a sinful people? How can that be? It's going to require some at the very least, you might say, some special arrangements for that to be, which takes us to Leviticus and the ordination of priests and the setting aside of priests and the, uh, the, these offerings, which brings us to this one, the first one that is listed, the most common, the most costly of them all, the burnt offering. And we learn so much in this, so many basic principles as to what it means to live in covenant, in relationship with our God. Today, not just then, but today, as we look at the, the laws, the stipulations, the rules surrounding the burnt offering. Our God, then and now, is looking for a totality with us. A wholeness, a completeness, an all-inclusiveness with us. The Lord wants, he's calling for a totality in our relationship with him, and we need to live with that in mind. Now, how do you see this totality fleshing itself out here in this passage? Well, in three ways, and if you have the outline, these are the three points. So the first one being a costly atonement. That's the first thing, a costly atonement. The second one is a wholehearted worship. And the third one is an inclusive concern. All of these, you can see how they touch on this theme of totality, a costly atonement, a wholehearted worship, and an inclusive concern. Let's look at these three in turn. So first we have the a costly atonement. Sin, sin leaves us culpable, makes us guilty, incurs God's wrath, how can we be ransomed? Sin is enslaving. Sin is defiling. How can we be cleansed? The burnt offering points us in this direction in, in a couple of ways. So first, there is a felt identification that is being spoken of here very, very plainly. 
So you have this laying on of the hand, right? You probably picked up on that. So I'll just read verse four. It is repeated, but in verse four, we read, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So this is a physical, tangible act. Your hand laid upon the fuzzy head of this animal and you will feel its warmth on the skin of your palm. This is a physical, tangible act implying substitution. In that context, this action, this gesture means a relationship is being established between the offerer and the offering because you need a substitute and this creature that you are putting your hand upon in that moment, in that context, is going to be your substitute, is going to be sacrificed in your place, in your stead, taking what really you deserve. So there's this sense of felt identification with the burnt offering. But not just that. Felt identification with one of great value. Not just any old animal right? Not just any old animal is described here. You see this in verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. A male without blemish. Now, ladies that is, and, and men, there's, this, there's no communication here of chauvinism or men, the male being better than the... It's not that. It's, it's just simply a reference to the realities of animal husbandry. Ancient and modern, the male is more valuable, more costly in the marketplace than the female. That's all it means. That's all it means. And this male animal... It has to be without blemish. It cannot be sickly. It cannot be wounded. It cannot have any imperfections. Why? Why? Because this is an offering, a sacrifice being given to the great king. And you don't give junk as an offering, as a sacrifice to the great king. So it is to be a male without blemish, but not just that, Utterly consumed, utterly consumed, burnt up, this burnt offering. Verse 9, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Unlike the, uh, the other offerings, and we'll, Lord willing, get into this in the weeks to come. Unlike the other offerings, this is the only one in which none of it is eaten by either the priest or the offerer. The entire thing is consumed upon that altar. None of it is saved. All of it is given. So you see again this idea, this felt identification with one of great value. This is a costly, the burnt offering is implying, is pointing and picturing a costly atonement and it is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the burnt offering. 
the burnt offering for us. We read from 1 Peter earlier. I want to go back to that, if we may, uh, because of some of the language that the Apostle Peter is, is using here. And really, we could look at several places, even in the text that was read earlier. It's just one little bit I want to look at. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Listen to the language, the imagery that he's tapping into here. Knowing that you, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Ours is but to lay the hand. The promise is that all those who will simply lay the hand, put their trust in the finished work of Christ, in his sacrifice, in his offering of himself in our stead. And we then receive all the benefits of that sacrifice, all the ransom, utterly ransomed, all the cleansing, utterly cleansed. We have but to lay the hand and lay our hand nowhere else. To lay our hand nowhere else. Again, the Lord is calling for a totality in our relationship with him. We're to live with that in mind. That's the first point, this costly atonement that the burnt offering points us towards. The second is a wholehearted worship, and that picks up right off. That's a sequel right from the first point. So uh, I, I said earlier that this was, the burnt offering was the most costly. It was also the most common of the offerings that were, were made. The priests, uh, this, this fire upon the altar there in the, the courtyard of the tabernacle area was kept burning night and day. And offerings would be brought, and offerings would be brought. Well, there are a few things that, other things that it pointed towards beyond just what we've already seen, and that one was a blameless life. A blameless life. So Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. Leviticus 11, verse 45 is one of many places we could look uh, that points to this. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am Holy. In fact, that was mentioned in 1 Peter 1. So the, the idea being here that the people of God are to live lives of imitation of their God, striving to be, to, longing to be like Him. And for our own sake, in fact, that is His longing for us. I mean, after a, how is He described, not just here, but even elsewhere? We can read, say, for instance, David's words in Psalm 18, uh, Psalm 18 verse 30 where David says Psalm 18 verse 30 this God his way is perfect or another way of translating that word is blameless this God his way is perfect it is he is blameless and how then are his people to live those who are to strive to long to live in imitation of this God well uh, you can get a sense of that we've already seen it but just to reiterate this point in Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 18, verse 13, again, this comes up in, again and again and again, Deuteronomy 18, verse 13, you shall be 
blameless before the Lord your God. He is blameless. He is holy. We are to be blameless. We are to be holy. And that is part of what this sacrifice was meant to convey as it is being burnt there on the altar. But actually, not just even that. A blameless life, a a blemishless sacrifice completely given over, which was meant to convey a blameless life utterly given over in devotion, in devotion to him. This, too, was part of what was meant to be conveyed, a life of, and you can see this in, in other places as, as, as the references are made to the burnt offering, a life of total dependence, a life of total dependence in the context of a great urgency and Uh, longing and seriousness to prayers being offered unto the Lord, a complete and utter leaning into him, the sense of utter dependence upon him. And not just that, but with that utter dependence, his other worthiness, the burnt offering in other contexts conveys in in its, as you read it, you can see not just that utter dependence, but his his utter worthiness. And so there's this great praise and thanksgiving, all of this pointing towards this idea, this concept of wholehearted, full-throated worship, okay? In that sense, this, again, this totality that he is looking for from his people, wholehearted. Now, what would that mean for us, for us today? Again, you, you, you think in terms of, of you've, you've placed your hand on the animal. That's what you can feel in that moment. And then, of course, the slaughter of the animal. And the sound and the smell that comes with that. Now you, the animal has been uh, cut apart, prepared and placed on the altar, and the fire is consuming it. And you can see the smoke rising. What do you see? What do you see as the smoke is rising up into the air? A totality. Your life, an offering for your God. That's the very thing that the Apostle Paul is is speaking towards, and he's tapping into this very language in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. This is the pivot point of what we call the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 11, Paul is is, is waxing eloquently about all that, that God has done for us in Christ. Chapters 12 and following, this then is how you are to live. But tw- chapter 12, verse 1 is the pivot. This is what Paul says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The burnt offering is capturing that imagery. That's what Paul is tapping into right there in Romans 12, verse 1. So what would this mean for us? Let me come at it another way. Not just by trying to put you there in the temple, excuse me, the tabernacle uh, courtyard, but think of it in another way. In what areas of your life have you walled off the king? Again, he is calling for totality. He is calling for a wholehearted, whole life, a complete worship given over to him. In what areas of your life, my life, have we walled off the king? 
politics. Our finances. Our plans, our goals. The most intimate personal choices and decisions that we might have in front of us. In what ways are we walling off our king when he is saying, no, no, I want it all. I want the totality of your life as even as we see the smoke rising from the altar into the sky. He is calling for a totality in our relationship with him. We're to live with that in mind, which then brings us to the third and final point. So not only is he calling for, and not only is the burnt offering pointing towards this costly atonement and the wholehearted worship, but lastly, his inclusive concern, his inclusive concern for all his people. And that's here as well. I don't know if you picked up on this. There, you could break it down. One way to outline Leviticus 1 is to look at the three different types of offerings or three different types of burnt offerings that could be given, right? So, for instance, in verses 3 through 9, you have the offering that's given from the herd. In verses 10 through 13, you have the burnt offering that's given over from the flock. And then in verses 14 through 17, you have the burnt offering that's given over from the birds, it's all one, in essence, one type of offering, the burnt offering, three forms of the burnt offering, three different sacrifices, three different species, three different creatures that are being given here. Similar procedures, though, really. I mean, anatomically, obviously, each one of these are very different. But the similarities are there if you pay heed to it and, and read between the lines and what Moses is saying here. Different physical features, but similar procedures. What else do you see as you progress through those three? Decreasing size, right? As you move from the herd to the flock to the birds. Decreasing size, decreasing cost, decreasing value in the market. And yet, each equally acceptable, each equally pleasing to the Lord. It's this refrain that is quite intentional here, it would seem. In verse 9, and the priest shall burn all of it. This is the, the uh, offering from the herd. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, this next is the offering from the flock. Verse 13, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And finally, the uh, the burnt offering from the, of a bird, it is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. What is being implied here? What is the lesson that God's people then and now are meant to, to grapple with? In the Lord's sight, he plays no favorites. There is no favoritism with our God. Yes, there were um, different types of burnt offerings but it was dependent upon what the individual with the household could afford. The idea being, I don't want to bankrupt you. I want you to bring the very best that you can bring, which of course then means, right? It's going to be, each, each sacrifice is going to be of, of different value, but proportionally, it's going to be an equal level of sacrifice, 
right? Relatively speaking, household to household. The, the idea, and again, again, each one equally, each worshiper, each offering, each offer equally pleasing in the Lord's sight because he plays no favorites. Then or now. I know this text has been mentioned a time or two. As, as when Will is up here, he takes us through uh, this, this wonderful series through the, the book of James. So, Will, here we go. James 2, uh, verses 1 and following. James chapter 2. So this is after the book of Hebrews. James chapter uh, 2, starting in verse 1. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and became, become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man, the Lord, even with the burnt offering is communicating his inclusive concern for his people, that none would be left out, that all would be welcome and invited to come, in fact, needing to come. So we're standing there in the tabernacle courtyard. What do you feel? You feel the fur. You feel the warmth. You're identifying with this creature. What do you see? You see the smoke rising up into the sky. What do you feel? What do you see? Who do you see? Who do you see coming? Who do you not see? Everyone's coming. You look to your left. You look to your right. The person from that part of the neighborhood. The person from that part of the neighborhood. The person from that tribe. The person from that tribe. They're all coming. They're all welcome. They're all welcome. This is how God sees his people. Without the splintering distinctions and differences that we bring to bear. Yes, with differences and distinctions, he made them. But without the splintering, dividing differences and distinctions. So gender and age and race and culture and class and education and experience and party and tribe, all of it, but none of it, none of it is meant to divide. None of it is meant to divide. All of it is meant to augment and beautify the oneness, the oneness of the people of God, the oneness of the body of Christ. That's what our differences and distinctions are meant to do. This is how God sees his people. So here's the question. Here's the question that we all have to grapple with. That's how he sees his people. How do we, how do I, I can see the differences. I can see the distinctions. So can you. But how do I see them? Where does my heart go? He welcomes them. He welcomes everyone, every offer, every offering, calling for a totality in our relationship with him. 
we come back to this, this metaphor I alluded to it earlier, that of marriage. Um, there's something of a totality in the marriage relationship. At least there's supposed to be. There's, there's supposed to be. If you think back to Genesis 2 and the old King James, the way it puts it, the, the man and the woman are to leave and to cleave and become one flesh. And the idea there being that uh, from the beginning and throughout the marriage, there is to be a comprehensiveness to this bond. Nothing is excluded. It's all included. A comprehensiveness. It affects everything, everything, when you say, I do. And not just a comprehensiveness, but an exclusiveness. There, is, there are to be no rivals whatsoever in the marital relationship. So a comprehensiveness, an exclusiveness, and a permanence, a lifelong bond. In essence, when you, when you get married, you're saying, as long as this bond stands, I stand with you. And, and, a, and a comprehensiveness, an exclusiveness, a permanence, all of which, that totality in the marriage relationship, all of that is meant to be a reflection of the totality that the Lord is calling for in our relationship with Him. Between us and Him, His people and Him. The costly atonement. The wholehearted worship and His inclusive, His inclusive concern. And the burnt offering is pointing towards all of this. Towards all of this. We pray. Lord, thank you for speaking this good news to us. I thank you for over long periods of time using various authors and different places and contexts, you, you're speaking this good news to us, and yet one message one message. You speak this good news and you show it as well. And here in Leviticus, here in these sacrifices, you show us the good news. You take us by the hand. You were preparing your people over the course of centuries for the one who was to come, who would be the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate uh, tabernacle, the ultimate priest, the ultimate offering the ultimate burnt offering. Lord Jesus, that is you. You are our burnt offering. And we see something in that and what we are to be in response to that. Oh, would you help us to see something here this morning, perhaps for the first time, of the totality of this relationship, of what you have given and how we are to respond. And how you see us. Oh, would you help us? We need you. We need you. We are so adept at walling you off. As we said earlier, putting you in a box. Would you ask us to continually be, would you help us as we continually ask? Would you help us as we continually ask? How do I need to hear this? And what is the burnt offering saying to me? We pray this in your name. Amen.